then I was watching one of Raman Adventures videos and he's doing this Rajuku Raman score. Mm-hmm. And like, if you pause the freeze frame in this YouTube video, <laughs> there's like the tarry recipe. There's like the Rajuku tarry recipe. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's like- I'm gonna drink. find that though. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way Ramen Podcast. In today's episode, we sit down with James Chant, the ramen cook behind the incredibly popular Matsudai Ramen pop-up in Cardiff, Wales. In this episode, James talks about how he kind of stumbled his way into making ramen and his journey of creating a pop-up which sells out nearly instantly whenever he releases tickets in a city that really isn't known for being a ramen city. James and I have a lot of similarities which we discovered throughout our talk, both of us coming from the incredibly brutal music industry and how learning to make ramen kind of picked us up and got us back on our feet again. It was great talking with James and it's also super cool just to know that the only real ramen experience in Wales is also taking all the time and doing all the steps correctly to provide the best ramen experience possible to a group of people that maybe aren't really familiar with the food. So it's a great representation of what ramen is. So without further ado, here's James Chant, aka Matsudai Ramen. Yeah, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for being interested. <laughs> There's a lot of interest, actually. We've got a lot of questions. So oh, that's cool. It's gonna... And the really cool thing about today is we got a lot of really insightful and thoughtful questions about making ramen because I think people know who you are and what you're doing there. So right. it's going to be good. I hope I can do the questions justice. I feel, feel like I still feel like a bit of a fraud. <laughs> no, no, no. Your stuff looks really great. So I guess could we start off by, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into ramen? Yeah. So, oh, well, first of all, I guess, what's your name? I, I know on, on Instagram, it says Jimmy. Now it says James. So yeah, what would you like almost, to be called? Like, it's up to you. <laughs> people, people use both. It, okay. my, my name, my family and friends will call me James mostly. Okay. Um, but there are a select group. There, there's like a certain group of friends of mine who just call me Jim or Jimmy. Uh-huh. So whatever, whatever's easy for you. Um, yeah, I'm James Chant is my name and I run Matsudai Ramen in Cardiff, Wales. Okay. Could you, I, I know that you have kind of an interesting story of how you got into ramen or it seems like I read your background about your, your involvement in the music industry and stuff. How did you get yeah. into making ramen or how did you go from that to making ramen? Well, um, yeah, so uh, from I le- when I left school, I worked in um, a record shop in Cardiff. Um, which was my first job. My only ambition coming out of school was to work in music, really. Um, so yeah, at the age of 18, I was working in Spillers Records in Cardiff, which is like the world's oldest record store. It's, oh, famous, wow. it's famous for being the world's oldest record store. It's really well-respected, like little sort of independent record shop. And then whilst I was there, I put a record out um, with a band that I was in. And yeah, we, we signed like a small record deal. and. I signed, I was a song, I was a principal songwriter. So I wrote, I signed um, like a publishing deal with kind of a big publisher. Um, and then I quit my job. And I sort of pursued that for a while. And, you know, from there up until present day, really, I've always worked in music. I did that. And then I was, um, then I made a solo record and then I started touring and I was tour managing and, and uh, backline teching. Um, and, uh, I've managed artists. I've done press and publicity stuff. Um, I still manage an artist now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done a de- degree in classical composition. Um, and yeah, and then I moved back. To, I, so I lived in Brighton for a time and then, which is in the South of England. 
by the sea. Um, and when I moved back to Cardiff from there, which was in about 2012, I got a job um, running a, a quite small but really well-loved music venue. And then I ran three music venues and then I went on to run a festival um, or manage a festival. So yeah, like it's so all music related, bit of a hodgepodge of a, of a CV. Um, and so leading on to how I got into ramen, sorry if this is a long and garbled message, no, no, my, my career hear. has been, been pretty weird. Um, um, yeah, so I, I finished with the company I was working for where I was promoting concerts and running artist training and running festivals as well. Um, and I was, yeah, the, we sold the company into another company just before I got married, like the week I got married. So the week I got married, um, I obviously got married and uh -huh. I lost my job and, <laughs> and we got the keys to a new house. So we moved from one city to another and that all happened in like three or four days. Oh, that's crazy. Um, and it was bonkers. So yeah, we, um, we went away, we got married, we went on honeymoon, we came back. Um, and like a month or so after that, um, it all came to a head really like everything that I'd been putting off sort of got to me and I was, I was in a really bad place. I was really depressed. I was really couldn't get myself out of it. Um, and I was by this point, this was like a couple of months after getting married. So by this point um, I was doing a lot of freelance work. So I was still in the same sphere and I was producing events and I was managing an artist and I was doing all this stuff, but it was just, you know, I just felt like a busy fool. I wasn't getting anywhere fast. Um, and we went away when we came back. Um, I was just like kind of suicide. Honestly, it was just like, it was really bad. It was like really bleak. And I chatted to my wife, Lisa, about it a lot. You know, we had this one day where we had summit talks because it got so bad. She was like, you just got to do something creative. Like you're a creative person and you've ended up in this world where you think you're being creative because you're working with creative people. But actually what you're doing is you're organizing so that they could be creative. You know, you need to live a creative life. Um, and so I sort of was like, yeah, maybe. And then I went and thought about it and went to this design festival and did all these things. And I just was like, yeah, that's what I'm gonna, she's absolutely right. Like, of course I'm a creative person. That's what, fuck, what am I doing? Like, of course I'm a creative person. So then that led, to, led me to like spending loads of time on Skillshare and learning all these things like, and, learning how to illustrate and design and and i've never drawn before but i was like painting like drawing and like learning how to use all these packages and my wife's an animator so she was teaching me some of that stuff as well um and i was making music again i was writing music for picture because that was something i was going to pursue that was what my degree was music for for media mm -hmm. and then i was getting you know i was getting more confident and i was getting happier and my work was getting better and it and then all of a sudden like this ramen thing really came out of thin air and took me totally by surprise because I'd never cooked in a kitchen, like a proper uh -huh. kitchen before. Like it was not at all on my agenda. In fact, I'd, I'd resolved not to do it. Like I thought about it and I'd been told by friends and family and stuff, you should, you should really like have a go at this. But I was like, nah, that's stupid. The hours would be crazy. There'll be no money, <laughs> which was kind of right. Um, but in the process of, of, of all this creativity, you know, I was, I was making more ramen because that was a creative outlet, mm -hmm. definitely. And that's something that I think this, probably our conversation will come back to time and again, is like 
cooking as a creative outlet because if I, if if I wasn't doing this, you know, it wouldn't be like I was cook. I'd be cooking another food. I wouldn't yeah. be cooking food at all. I would. This is like a very singular ambition. Like if I wasn't doing this, and this this has happened. Like listening to all of your, a lot of your interviews, like um, and Andre in Australia, like mm-hmm. uh, Mike Ramanova, um, like um, pretty much everyone. And I was talking to Raman Addict about it the other day, and like mm-hmm. it's it's such a it's just a creative, it's such a creative thing to do. It is. It's, it's not like any other food. And it takes a very singular sort of person to do it as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to do it. Um, but all, you know, all these things have come up and I designed this logo um, totally by accident, just as, just as a project. And then a local venue, Blue Honey, came to me and they were like, we know that you know like a bit about ramen we're thinking of doing doing self-serve ramen as a, as a thing come, will you come in and have a chat with us and i was like oh great uh so i went in and had a chat with them and they were like this is what we're going to do we're going to hot hold all the noodles we're going to hot hold everything and then it, with people serve themselves and it was just you know <laughs> the whole thing was just like set up to be so dreadful yeah yeah um and in the process of talking they were like you really know what you're talking about huh and then uh-huh. uh they were like, why don't you do it? And now we are four months later and I'm like a ramen cook, apparently. <laughs> That's awesome. Can I just tell you, though, that when I was hearing your story, it's so it's very eerily similar to my story. Really? In the sense where after college, I spent 10 years, what is it, 12 years of my life doing in the music industry. Oh, really? Here in Hawaii. And I put myself into his position. I, I, we can talk about a lot after the podcast, but I put myself into a position where... I was a very creative person and I had basically outsourced all of my creative works to other people. And I was dealing with all the shit that I didn't oh, want yeah, to do man. anymore. Yeah. And, and I felt like, well, because my business was doing well at the time it was okay. And business itself was created. I had convinced myself and then the business started to doing to do not so great. And it was kind of like put me into kind of a bad place too. And I was married, I had yeah. a kid and, and um, ramen was actually my thing that kind of got me out. Well, I, I started doing exactly what you did. I started just doing like a bunch of creative things as yeah. well. Like oh, trying wow. out like, uh, I just started to try to make things like try to make tofu. I tried to make chocolate and I just tried yeah. to make, like all these kind of things, you know, and then, and then ramen, I had tried to make ramen in the past and it kind of went back to that. And I had found out that it was like something that you could really just get into. And that was my, if you listen, mm. if you I don't know if you watch any of my videos on YouTube, but if you listen yeah. to my first few videos on YouTube, I sound like a depressed person because <laughs> I was not in a really good place when I made those first few videos. Yeah. But, but that's like, it's really crazy. We'll talk about it after this after the podcast, yeah, but yeah. it's a really eerily similar. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And like, you know, Sarah, Sarah Gavigan, you know, um, she was in the, she was in the music industry. Mm-hmm. She, um, I can't remember what she did, but she was, she worked at a major label doing something mm-hmm. and, yeah you can hear it in all in pretty much everyone who work, who i think kind of works in ramen well the um, music industry is a weird thing because as someone who loves music you get into it because you think like this is the ultimate thing i get to be creative for a living yeah. but then you realize the business side of it is so cutthroat and people are just terrible people in it and, they really uh, are yeah and, um, and it's just like and so also, incredible you know I, that, was chat- I was chatting to sarah gavigan about this like just in some in some messages like 
coming out of music and presenting the world with this Matsudai thing, which I had really taken on board and was really like passionate about and was really focused on. And it was really me. It was quite, it was a terrifying thing to like put it out into the world. But the reception was just like a warm hug. Immediately everyone was like, oh, this is brilliant. You're, you're a brilliant person for doing this. Like, it's so brave of you. Like, it's, it's amazing. Um, and coming out of the music industry, that's like doubly nice because people are just so cynical. And yeah. like, you go into the music industry because you really love music. And if you remain in it, you've got to really love music because it's mm -hmm. a total shit show of an industry. Um, <laughs> yeah. But to come out of it and then come into, come into ramen where, you know, when I started, I was like trying to speak to, I was like trying to, I, was, I got in touch with the guys at Apudo and I got in touch with like the guy who runs, who owns Canada Yard. And I got in touch with all these people and everyone uniformly from like people um, of low stature, you know, whatever that means to like people who owned these places and were, like had lots of money and were doing like really lauded from, you know, from your Mike Satinovers to your um, Keizo Shimamoto to mm -hmm. like Aaron who runs Canada across the board. Everyone had time for me and everyone was really encouraging and everyone yeah. did really well. And it was like, I think that's what sustained me through it being really hard. It's yeah. just how it's just such a lovely, warm, open um, community of people like everyone wants everyone else to do better and to do yeah. great things and people aren't cynical that they are in the music industry so it was a really beautiful thing to come out of what I was yeah. doing where it was really grinding me into the grinding me down and every day was difficult to yeah I know I know exactly what you're talking about yeah it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy um yeah like the thing with Mike too it's like I would read his things on reddit and he's such like an open open book he'll tell yeah. you everything that he knows and it's like that is not something that would happen. And no, and do and you know what? I like, if it's single, single-handedly, like if it wasn't for Mike, there's no way I'd be making ramen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just, just that's, that's just the truth of it. There's no way I'd found access to the, inform, to, the same, to the right information in the same way. Like it's very hard in the UK um, to find ingredients and to find um, information. So without him, you know, it just, yeah, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. So. I tell him like, you're the guy, you're one of the guys, man. Like everybody out there looks up to you and he's like, I'm just a normal guy making ramen in Chicago. And like, no, yeah, you don't understand. Funny, There's like so many people that have cite, cite you as the person that helped them the most, you know? So, yeah, I think he's probably like the greatest English language resource on, yeah. he's single-handedly the, the, the greatest English language resource on yeah. ramen, surely. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be a generation of like people globally who start making ramen, little pockets in yeah. like Belgium and in Wales and in yep. like all these little places that are able to do it now because he's yeah. like sown the seed and given people not just because his recipes aren't just like, uh, you know, do exactly this and then exactly this will be the outcome. They're like, well, this is the method. This is the methodology. Like there's and he gives you room to fuck it up. <laughs> but can we talk about like what made you want to make ramen like did you have an experience of eating ramen and do you know what i've been asked make it? i've been asked this so much and i keep saying to people that i had i had a bowl i was living in cheltenham for a little while because my wife had a job there which is in like a, it's a fancy part of england 
Um, and there was a, a Japanese restaurant run by Chinese people called uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> called Wakame, and it was it was dreadful. It's a terrible like, name too. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. It wasn't dreadful. That's not fair. I'm not going to say people. It yeah. wasn't. It was just like one of these. That's just the standard of kind of that sort of thing in in Britain, really. So it was. Um, you could imagine what it was. They did sushi. They did like mm -hmm. Dom trying to do everything right. They like did sushi, everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. I, until that point, I'd only, I've been to Japan actually, but I'd ne I didn't have ramen while I was in Japan. So mm -hmm. I've been to Japan, but I'd ne the only ramen I'd had really was at Wagamama, which I, d I don't know if you have Wagamama in Hawaii or in the States, but it's like a, it's a chain, it's a, it's a chain and there. It's probably better than, you know, not having it, but it's not, it's by no means authentic or, or anything. And the broths are really light and you know, that sort of thing. Um, so that was my idea of what ramen was. And then I went to this place and I had a bowl of miso ramen. Um, and I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like in retrospect now, it wasn't. <laughs> but actually what led me up to that moment was reading about ramen on Serious Eats. Mm -hmm. So my wife, a couple of years ago, bought me a sous vide yeah. circulator for my birthday. Um, and I was like, oh, brilliant. I've got no idea what to do with this. That she, you know, she knew I love cooking, and, and so yeah, I went to Serious Eats to learn about cooking sous vide, and in the process, I just got really into like reading about the wok skills and reading about like all the techniques um, for Asian cooking they had, mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of that that led me down the rabbit hole really. And then from there, I found Mike's stuff, and from Mike's stuff, I've just totally gone down the rabbit hole and now it's <laughs> kind of all i read or think about yeah yeah um so yeah that would that would be more the story really and then um from there i think ha again having listened to like I, I listened to a fair few of your podcasts last week when i was in london walking around um and my story from there was pretty much exactly the same as everyone else's i <laughs> like 80 bowls or something of fucking terrible tonkotsu <laughs> like just nothing just like milky water milky yeah, water yeah. um until it started clicking cool yeah that's awesome yeah it's like such a tonkotsu is like so hard to make but it looks so easy it's like a weird thing you yeah. know yeah yeah um, would you say would you say that tonkotsu is like your main style that you like to make now or are you is no that just it's, like a... it's probably the style i like making least oh yeah just because it's so hard to to, huh. to do properly on mass, especially the way I'm doing it. I mean, doing it for pop-ups and you know, I'm just, I'm just at a I'm just at a pot for God knows how long, you know. And then I'm blending and I'm there's just so many stages to it. Like you, I I soak the bones for two nights and then there's the blanch, and you know, I think if you if you've got a restaurant and you're building that time into your day, so you've got routines, it's it's fine. But when you've got to spend that much time in a in a prep kitchen and then you've got mm -hmm. to transport it somewhere else. It's, it's really, really tough. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, there's not a kind of ramen I don't like. I, do, I don't, I don't like the snobbiness about tonkotsu. You sure you can't <laughs> eat it every day, but I mean, it's still pretty delicious, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Tonkotsu is, well, there's a reason why a lot of people love tonkotsu. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. really, really, it tastes really, really good. If it's done right, yeah. it tastes really, yeah. really good. And it is kind of one, one note as a dish. Um, yeah. It's not, it does lack the subtlety of others other kinds of ramen but yeah 
it's really good rib coating <laughs> <laughs> if you're ma- if you're making ramen for yourself what do you typically make the, the the dish i gravitate to most of all is like um a chicken paitan with mm-hmm. some sort of gaiokai element like you know gyofan and mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of dashi that's kind of where I, my brain always goes whenever I fancy it. I think that's probably my favorite kind of ramen. Cool. That's, that's really cool because I'm going to try to do a Python, Tori Python this week for a video yeah. and I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm going to have to ask you some questions. Yeah, yeah, do it. I actually had a Tori Python for lunch. Oh, nice. It's, yeah, it's on my, it's on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, what kind of, so you learned from Mike, but did you go after, like you said, Mike gives you a lot of leeway and like, okay, you can kind of do this. You can kind of do that. Did you go about developing your own tades and things like that too? Or was it, how did you go about that process? Cause I'm sure well, you're doing something. I, I think, yeah, it's some of like my starting points. So I never really got on with any of the tare recipes I, I could find for a tonkotsu, for example. And then I was watching one of Ramen Adventures videos and he's doing this Rajuku Ramen School. Mm-hmm. And like, if you pause the freeze frame in this YouTube video, <laughs> there's like the tare recipe. There's like the Rajuku tare recipe. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's like- I'm going to find that though. Yeah, it's like 360 millile- millimeters, milliliters of, um, uh, of sake, 300 milliliters of water. 100, and like, I've adapted all of that now. But that's that's like- so I would always find like a starting starting point uh-huh. and figure out what the technique would be. And then from there, they just constantly evolve, evolve really. Um, and yeah, this month I've had a bit of time to play around with things. So I've been, you know, with my shoyu recipe, I've been working on the, like testing shoyu, biting tons of shoyus and mm-hmm. testing them and coming up with a blend that's like really well balanced. And then also trying to find see, uh, trying to find seafood re- uh, sorry excuse me trying to find seafood locally that mm-hmm. um, will work talking like I was listening to you on, on what's sorry what's his name Andre Key Andre Andre Key yeah he's in Australia Perth yeah yeah, yeah. so listening to his podcast was pretty inspired made me think about my shoyu and shio tares and the way you've saying about blending um, cla- was he blending clams mm-hmm. blending clams into it yeah, yeah. yeah. and like keizo blends um Niboshi into his yeah, yeah. Food, so I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna try some of those things but I think it's just a constant process with Tara isn't it and that's this kind of almost the most interesting part as well because mm-hmm. to an extent like you can fine-tune a recipe for a tonkatsu and you like one person is going to prefer a certain bricks to another and there'll be there are like different you know some people use pig's heads some people use all femur some people use neck and femur whatever it is but to an extent, I mean, like it's a creamy white broth that's mm-hmm. quite hearty, right? Um, whereas with the tare, like sort of, you know, the world's your oyster, you can mess around endlessly, yeah. and that's the create that's the creative part. And the that's yeah, part. that's your personality that's going into it. Yeah, what, yeah, you, what you like to taste and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in, in Wales, we've got like a ton of great seafood, and we've got really great seaweed here and kelp and stuff. So. I'm just trying to figure out ways of finding, sourcing that and then incorporating it really. How has it been sourcing these ingredients in, in Wales or in the UK in general? An absolute nightmare. <laughs> like it's impossible. 
there's there's like there's one company in the UK that um you can buy sun noodles from and then I think there's one single company that makes noodles but they're re- the company that's making the noodles um are really new so their okay. their capacity for making noodles is is quite low um at the moment uh, so yeah it's just really 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 tough to firstly to even find a lot of the stuff you know like in terms of say naboshi um mm-hmm. like i can find i can find one kind of naboshi i can't find like there's one kind that comes in, yeah, a yeah. in the freezer you know so that's just naboshi there's no uh-huh. there's no messing around with variants on that like yeah that's what you're using um sake there's like two kinds of sake <laughs> two kinds of cooking sake that i've been able yeah, to yeah. find and um they're so expensive it's like oh really yeah yeah like it's 600 milliliters uh-huh. so is not very um, much is about eight eight pounds which is about 10 bucks yeah that's crazy yeah we have like these tiny like five dollar like little sake i think it's probably around 500 milliliters like five dollars right. or something yeah. yeah 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 so it's re- it's really really tough o- over here um i think as, as i'm um as my quantities are going up as i'm selling more ramen i'm i'm finding it easier to get access um to to ingredients and to the people people selling to me um how how are you getting all your pork bones and your other types of bones um so again that was quite difficult like i've in the last couple of months i've been able to track down um stewing hens Mm -hmm. and as you as you know like I think you said that in another podcast. It's like a stewing hen is like a different animal altogether. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Like the the stock is just so different. Um, so now that I've tried a stewing hen, I'm really loath to go back to, to chickens, regular old chickens. Um, and so I can get there quite readily now, um, but they're really expensive. They're quite expensive. Um, and then pork, for all my pork bones, there's a, there's a, sustainable farm that's about an hour drive for me and um i feel really good about working with them oh that's awesome the pork's amazing and also it's really really fatty pork Mm -hmm. they're they're welsh black pigs um and they're just so fatty i was using their pork belly initially um but it was like i was losing like 70 percent of it because it was just so much fat the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) so i've had to stop doing that but yeah their bones their bones are amazing and lovely people and the pigs are like really well looked after. So every time I, if I ever go up and see them, I get to hang out with the pigs and stuff. It's oh, just, that's cool. Really that's yeah. My, um, I'm probably going to, I don't know if I'm going to do a tonkotsu or I'm just going to do like a pork chintan, but we have a wild boar issue on Kauai where I live, on the island where I live. And my dad's at my dad's house, he always gets them and he gets people to hunt them and kill them and stuff. So right. I just asked him like, Hey, save some of the bones for me. And I'm going to see what I can do with those. Oh, wow. like, yeah. We're like wild game. It's kind of like, That'll be pretty kind of, full on. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna <laughs> be interesting to see how it. T- yeah, it's gonna be really interesting <laughs> to see how it tastes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So this is. I'm just gonna ask some selfish, selfish questions now because I am gonna attempt the tori python this week. Cool. What do you use for your tori python? Are you using 100% stewing hands? Are you using chicken bones or? Um, something I have trouble with it here is getting hold of um. Feet. Oh really? And hen feet, yeah. Um, so in an ideal world, yeah, it'll be stewing hens with a 
a raft of feet at the top. Um, and I, gen I tend to, I tend to make a, a chintan and then reuse the bones to make a pytan. I see. I see. Um, that's so actually that's probably smarter, but I don't know if I'm going to do that. So how does that work? It's you, you extract the chintan soup, you have that, and then you just boil the bones again and the, the meat again. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do a chintan, um, we're, uh, on the, on the stove, um, mm -hmm. at about, you know, 180, um, and just keep it at constant temperature for six hours, um, with some aromatics. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just reuse those bones, reuse those bones then to, I, I my Python is purely, I, I pressure cook purely the bones for about an hour and a half, an hour and 40. Um, and then I'll, I'll boil them hard for about an hour afterwards, um, with some, some ginger and some onion and then, yeah, strain it, um, put back in, I put back in a lot of the skin and a lot of the, a lot of the fat and a lot of the, uh, some of the, the flesh, the fattier flesh, mm -hmm. take out most of the bones, um, blend, strain, strain again, um, cheesecloth. And then that's it. Yeah. Do you Humble. use like a lot of them? So when you're, so do you actually break down the stewing hen and then just only use the bones or mostly, or are you throwing in like the thighs or anything? I throw the whole thing in here. Yeah. It's broken oh, down. Oh, broken you, you break down. it down, but you throw the whole, all the meat in and everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. 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 And that yeah. goes for the Python too. After the Chintan, you're throwing yeah. in the meat and everything. Okay, cool. Yeah. I use it. Exactly. Good to know. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm doing, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I kind of realized that's what's, um, that's the advantage I have with this podcast is that there's so many people that know more than me that <laughs> I think they feel like they can't ask stupid questions, but I don't really care. I'll just ask the most basicest questions because no, not I'm at learning. All. I want this whole, the whole reason I started this podcast is so I could talk to people and learn how to make better ramen. So, well, yeah, that's the nice thing about ramen though, isn't it? Everyone's doing the same thing. I think yeah. maybe everyone almost everyone in ramen has got imposter syndrome is a bit like, yeah. feels like, you know, they, they don't belong. Like it's a total accident. They've ended up there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, yeah. You, you're telling me, I'm trying to get some of these people that on Instagram onto the show and they're like, Oh, I'm not really ready yet. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. That looks great. You know? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's get, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. It's like, you have you heard of the Dunning Kruger effect where no. like um, when you're a beginner, it's like a psychological, phenomenon is like when you're a beginner you think you know a lot if you learn just a little bit so your confidence yeah. goes oh. sky high yeah, yeah and then the more that you learn as this is the this is the time axis the more that you learn the more your confidence <laughs> drops and so when you actually know a lot you actually feel like you don't know very much yeah yeah and then and you look at the people that are talking a lot and you're like that guy doesn't know anything and but as you when you become a true expert your confidence slowly comes back up on yeah the right like, but it yeah, never yeah. hits quite the uh, confidence you had as a beginner. <laughs> you don't know anything. So I think a lot yeah. of people in the ramen world are at the bottom of the Dunning-Kruger effect where yeah. they, don't, they know a lot, but they feel like they don't know they enough. They don't know so. anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I can recognize that in myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I got a bunch of questions. So I'm going to start putting some of these in here and then we can continue to have our discussion. Cool. So I have a lot of questions about... Um, Tonkotsu ramen because I guess people check out your Instagram and things. So Chrome Coconut was asking, what's your total time on boiling tonkotsu? Um, if, if I'm 
using just a pot at the stove it'll be ah. about 18 hours usually oh jeez um, yeah um but i i try and cuz it's such a long process i try and break it down over the course of a few days so if i'm in the kitchen one day i'll put the bones on i'll soak the bones overnight and then when i'm in the kitchen the next day i'll soak the bones for the day um then the next day maybe i'll i'll blanch them because blanching is a nightmare of a process i mean like if you if you're blanching two kilos of bones um that's easy enough there's a shitload of scum coming out of two there's a lot of scum yeah. coming out and then you've got to wash them and clean them and get at them with the you know my i get a lot of cuts on my hands now yeah, yeah. um but if you so yeah if you're doing two kilos it's a pain but if you're doing like 40 50 kilos it's like that's a lot of work um <laughs> So yeah, I'll do that in one day and then I'll put the bones in the fridge overnight and then maybe the, ne- the next day I'll either just do it, you know, I'll either put this, put, get, get a broth on really early and just get on with it or I'll pressure cook the bones and then the next day again, another, yeah, another day I'll, I'll go in and I'll um, boil them really hard. For, Have you noticed the significant four or, oh, four or five hours after pressure cooking? Yeah. How long do you pressure cook again? Sorry. Um, it tends to be for about three to four out four hours. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I'll usually, I'll usually do two hours and then stop and tr- just mash the bones up mm-hmm. and then another hour and a half, two hours. Um, and then, yeah, either just finish it off there and then or, or come back the next day, depending on how tired I am. I mean, before Christmas I was doing, we did, we did, we had six pop-ups in December, which was just so much. And I did pretty much all of the prep on my own for the six pop-ups. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. So I ended up making like 600 bowls of ramen on my own in a week. It was oh my God. so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and, I was, and I was starting at like eight o'clock in the morning and finishing at like four or five o'clock the next morning. It was just, oh my God. Yeah. it was just ruinously difficult. It was so hard. Um, I've got so much respect for people who do that day in, day out. Like mm-hmm. I went and met um, the guy, a guy called Aaron um, Burgess Smith, who who owns Canada, which is um, a chain of ramen shops, like tonkotsu shops. And they're mm-hmm. really great. Um, they were based out of London. Um, and the guy, Mr. Canada, Canada-san, who started the original one in, in Japan, um, he's in his sixties now and he, he starts at three in the morning and finishes at about midnight every day, like every yes. day, like he's in his sixties, <laughs> this guy, like, it's just so hard. How do you do yeah. that? Like, I, I don't know how you sustain that as a lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. It's bonkers. I've got so much respect for, for it, but um, yeah, sorry. I've got a bit, a little bit off topic there. No, no. I think there is a little bit to that. Um, Japanese people just being masochists when it yeah. comes to work, you know, yeah, yeah, the work yeah. ethic is kind of a little bit too much sometimes, but yeah. would, have you found any difference on the times of soaking the bones? Have you ever tried to soak it for like, I don't know, like six hours compared to two days? Yeah. I, I haven't um, done it in any sort of scientific way, uh-huh. but, but I feel like I've noticed a clearer broth clear a broth with a, a double a double soak oh okay okay yeah like I, th- I think when i first started making tonkotsu um 
they were really easy. They're those. They're the bits where you're like, nah, I won't bother with that. Sure, what? How much difference can it make? And then you're like, mm. your tonkatsu looks like a shoyu. Um, <laughs> like, what have I done? And it, with every little incremental incremental change, like you know, you you do soak the bones properly, and then you huh. do you know you 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 do properly blanch them, and you do properly clean them. All those things, they're there for a reason. Like you just can't you you just can't shortcut anything in the tonkatsu you just gotta like the only thing you can shortcut is for, for me is, the, is some of the pressure cooking and i mean some people would disagree with that i know kenji lopez alt won't have it i mean mike had an argument about it once and they i think i'll let it in but yeah for me that's the only that's the only bit that you can really short have a shortcut around and it sounds like that's going to be a huge shortcut but it's still so long yeah. the process is just still yeah. so even if you cut out like 15 hours of boiling bones it's still so a day long. of boiling yeah. yeah it's still so hard do you do you typically take off all the meat from the bones too or do you leave the meat on i've seen both arguments for both some people say like you can leave the meat on and it doesn't really affect the color and some people say no you have to rip off all the meat too yeah i, I leave most of the meat on if there's okay. some particularly dark meat i'll i'll take that off um yeah but yeah for the most part i'm not too fussy on that and then you know they, they, it, yeah because cool. like, that's what i started doing recently too i i had initially like watched some japanese people do it and they're like oh you have to rip off all this stuff but they're all amateurs too. Putting the people putting right. up videos on YouTube in Japan are amateurs as well, so they don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sort of feeling. I'm an amateur too, really. I'm just feeling my way through it. But no, no. yeah, I mean, you know, for me, there's there are enough processes in making a bowl of, <laughs> bowl of pork soup that I'm not going to start taking the meat off the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless someone can show me like real evidence that it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What um what kind of tare do you typically use for your tonkotsu? Are you going shio tare or are you doing shio? Else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What what kind of so that's a question that we got from our bukalan is what's what's a, what makes a good shio tare for tonkotsu? My shio tare is really really simple. Uh, I use really I really use really good salts. Um, there's a blend of salts, so I'll use um, some kosher salt and some Malden salt and some smoked salt as well. Um, and then the other thing that you just can't do without in a tonkatsu is shit ton of MSG. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, it just needs it really. Um, Have you tried to make tonkatsu without MSG? Um, I, I probably have back in the days when it was really yeah. bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, yeah. I get a lot of comments on my YouTube channel, like, why do, why do you have to put MSG? It's like, because that's what delicious, man. Is there like the same kind of stigma in the UK or in Wales about adding there, MSG to food? And so people that are coming in are asking if there's MSG in, in this yeah. soup. And, oh, yeah, uh, you get that people too. haven't asked, actually. Uh -huh. um, and They'd rather not know. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe like the people, the, maybe the sorts of people who are coming to my nights um maybe they have an understanding maybe i don't know like maybe they're slightly educated about it mm. um, but yeah we haven't really had any problem with that as yet if if it grows then you know inevitably it will happen um, i don't think you can, i don't i don't know if you can make tonkotsu without a shitload of no, energy it's kind of like the, one of the main ingredients of it yeah <laughs> 
it would just be milky water, wouldn't it? Milky yeah. pork water without um, of MSG. But there's definitely a stigma around MSG in the UK, okay. the same as same as there is in the states, I'd imagine. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's kind of. What was it? Did David Chang say about um, just that it was it's kind of a racist? <laughs> it's just like Chinese Chinese restaurant syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the guy that wrote that initial paper was also Asian, which is weird. I, really? I, I could be mistaken. Yeah, could be mistaken, but yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny because I have another question here from, I, I don't know how to pronounce the name, but I know his real name is Rene. It's like, what gives Tonkotsu its complex flavor? And it's pretty much, what do you think? And what should you do to not make it taste like only pork water? Add um, MSG or what do you think? I'm not sure... I'm not sure it is that complex flavor, really. Um, it's deeply umami when you mm. get it right. But I think getting it right is a case of just not cutting corners, spending all that time, blanching the bones, you know, just, just not messing around and giving it the, the full amount of time that it, that it needs to become a tonkotsu. It just, it just takes time and it just takes work. Um, and what was the sorry? What was the second part of the question? Oh, sorry, I hit my mic. Um, what should you add to make it not taste like pork water? Pork, not so not make it not taste. Quite a lot of salt. Yeah, and quite a lot of MSG would be my answer to that. <laughs> um, like, if this guy wants to send me a, a message, I, I'll happily share my, um, you know, altered. Rajuku Ramen School. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna look for that video now, and I'm gonna try it out. In the um, um, in the same freeze frame, there's also a taro recipe for yaki ramen. Okay, which I cool. haven't around to trying yet. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome that you found that. There's gonna be a bunch of people, a bunch of hits on uh, Brian's channel now. <laughs> yeah, right. looking for that same type stuff. In um, yeah, I, it's quite a simple recipe. Like it's a really simple recipe, but within that, then there's lots of room to like make it your own. So it's yeah. a really, it's a really, really good place to start, I think. So um, this kind of question kind of leads into that. So do you use this? Is a question from Yoyaki. Do you uh, do you have any thoughts on using turkey necks or I guess anything else to balance out or mellow the pork smell? Um, it yeah, it depends if you want to mellow the, the pork smell, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, for me, a tonkotsu is meant to be like that really full-on um, piggy, like <laughs> overwhelmingly yeah, gelatinous pork. and like luxurious uh -huh. kind of thing that you should only eat like once every six months or so. <laughs> yeah. um, I think you probably, yeah, you. I'm sure you could use turkey bones, but I've never, re I've never experimented with turkey bones actually. For making for making ramen, I know quite a lot of people um, did around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe Nish, Nishishu did a turkey ramen. Maybe a turkey oh, I, or something. Yeah, I think a lot of people try to do turkey around Thanksgiving in America because it's just there, and it's like yeah, you can try with this. But I think he was saying that he'd he'd, he'd like made it a tradition to to go out and buy a, a turkey in the in the sales just after thanksgiving and make turkey, oh, turkey yeah. ramen for everyone <laughs> which is a nice thing but yeah i'm not Do sure you... turkey's a bit less of a thing in the in the uk 
you have do you to... keep it like just 100 percent pork for your tonkotsu you don't add chicken backs or anything no most of the time it's 100 percent. oh cool pork yeah awesome. it's really full-on pork flavor yeah yeah <laughs> cool um for for a chashu do you use belly or shoulder for your chashu for that bowl this use, is from the same person i use belly most okay. of the time um i went through um when i when during that for our first pop-ups i was serving our tonkotsu with um two kinds of chashu so there'd be mm. two slices two small slices of um of belly and then there'd be a slice of it started as shoulder um which i'd sous vide and serve like kind of pink um and then i was then i started and i messed around with tenderloin as well we did tenderloin at, at one of the um at one of the pop-ups yeah but mostly mostly it's um braised in a pan pork belly mm. that's it's kind of it's this it's the easiest way to do it i think sous vide is pretty easy because you can do it on mass but i think there's just such a flexibility with um braising it and it's just and it's my favorite yeah like in terms of flavor profile it's just the one that i like the most so i think at some point i'll try and mess around with new dishes and move back towards using rare shoulder or you know um, other cuts um but for now yeah cool um let's see there's a bunch of questions here i think we should just try to bang out a lot of these questions because there's so many um tom from vermont is asking do you uh blend the soup or do you not blend the soup um and by any kind of pointers for making a first tonkotsu ramen i do tend to um tend to blend the soup yeah um, not before service obviously but just mm. as as i'm as i'm making it which um, which is a process again another process that takes quite a lot of time if you if you've got forty liters of soup say you know or sixty liters of soup which I did in December oh my god um, yeah and you've got a two liter blender <laughs> 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 it's gonna take you, it's gonna take you quite a while you gotta I, you gotta I get think, like one of those giant stick blenders that they have in Japan yeah. you know they just put yeah, it into yeah, the pot. Yeah. Yeah. I've got I, my stick blender actually gave up the ghost yesterday. My stick blender <laughs> disintegrated into a toy can last night. So oh my god! I can't do that anymore. Um, yeah, I do. I do blend it. I think, especially when you're pressure cooking. Um, I think if you if you've got it on a pot for 18 hours, it's it's it, it's quite a different beast. Like you, it needs less help then at the end. Whereas if you if you're pressure cooking and you're and you're finishing it on the stove, then it, it kind of needs that help at the end. That's true. So like if you're going to do the full 18 hour boil, no pressure cooking, you, you can kind of, maybe you don't need the, the blending so much, but if you're going to pressure cook, you need to blend it a little bit to emulsify. Yeah, I, th I think so. Yeah. I mean, and you know, my, the better the blender as well, the better, the better was like, it goes without saying, but it's yeah. quite exponential. The difference between, you know, I had a, like a, a 15 pound, stick blender that I was using. And then I bought this like a, a fairly decent um, like bar blender, you know, ice blender kind of thing. And yeah, it, it emulsifies so much better. It just gets a richer, richer product. Do you have a ratio of water to bones that you typically use or is it um, just eyeball? I don't, I, I eyeball it really. Um, 
but it tends, I think it tends to end up being um, about 1.2 liters of water to a kilo of bones, um, unless it's um, like a, a shoyu or, mm. or shio chintan, um, mm. in which case I'll try and make it a sort of one-to-one, one kilo mm. to, to, to one liter um, if I want more body. Oh, cool. But then it depends on the bones as well. I mean, yeah, all you can really do is try, is like taste at the end and see what the mouth, how the mouth feel is. And mm. some, the, um, the, the bones I get from the farm in mid Wales, uh, like they're so fatty, you know, you can, you can up the water content a little bit and with hens as well, like, you know, stewing hens are just really gelatinous. So, you can get away with a little bit more water and your yield is can be a little bit higher. But if you've got, you know, chicken carcasses that are kind of um, don't have a lot of meat or fat on them, mm-hmm. then you're going to need, yeah, you, you, your yield is going to come down. I think. Are you reducing as you're, when you're doing the 18 hour boil, are you reducing down or are you top, topping off with water as you go? I, I top it off with water as I go. And then at okay. the end I'll, you know, I'll taste it until it gets to a point that I'm happy with. I, oh. I heard Mike Mike talking about um, bricksometers, I'd, and I'd I'd like a refractometer, you know, mm-hmm. to test the bricks. And I'd like to um, I did buy one, but it didn't work. So I, I'd like to get another <laughs> one and just like just to check where. I don't think I'd use it, but just to check and see yeah, yeah. where where I'm pitching just more like a train, more like a training device to see, yeah. Like, yeah, this is, I think where it is. Yeah. Yeah. And just to check that I'm not like miles, miles off and mm. making everyone really fat. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you, if you have repeat customers, they're expecting that certain taste and feeling yeah, and yeah. stuff. So yeah. Cool. Exactly. So I got, I, this, this question comes from, I guess, like regular customers. So Shannon Rosalie, I think, okay. how do you marinate your shiitake mushrooms? Matsudais are the best I've ever tasted. <laughs> um, <laughs> They are quite simple, really. Um, it's, it's just water. I haven't got my recipe in front of me. I can't really remember. It's, wa- it's just water, um, vinegar, and soy oh. with, with ginger, pretty much. Um, vinegar. The vinegar changes depending on what I've got available. Sometimes it's sherry vinegar. Sometimes it's rice wine vinegar. Um, sometimes it's mirin, um, and there's sugar in there as well, which will obviously come down. Um, but if she wants to send me a message, I'll gladly send her a recipe. It's no secret. Oh, cool. Are you using and that for like a, a really great recipe for that in Sarah Gavigan's book as well. So for oh. anyone that's interested in making ramen at home, I think that's Ooh. a really good, either that or, um, let's make ramen. I Is that like fresh, fresh shiitake mushrooms you guys are using? I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm using, no, I'm using dried mushrooms. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you rehydrate it first and then marinate it, or is it uh, so I marinating? Tend to, I tend to rehydrate the mushrooms in some in just in water mm-hmm. for a, uh, an hour or so, and then drain that water and use that water in a in my veggie broth in my veggie mm-hmm. SI broth, and then I'll reuse those mushrooms in uh, and pickle them. I should do that. I've done some dashi stocks with shiitake and i just throw them away after i should actually use them oh yeah they're like they're perfect yeah yeah Yeah. totally usable yeah 
Um, so they're dual purpose then. You can get a broth out of them and you can, and you can use them as a topping. Yeah. So much of that sort of stuff in ramen. I really like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you really don't need to be wasteful in it at all. Yeah. Like with the, um, with the, uh, when I'm making a broth, so I can make, I can make a chintan with the hands and then I can make a pitan with those same hands. And then once they're blended, I can, at the end, feed them to my dog. <laughs> and it's amazing because you're yeah, just getting like so much use out of it. And I really feel that makes me feel really good about it. Like I feel so good about myself when I'm, yeah. when I manage to get all these uses out of, out of one thing. Like, and it's, awesome. You should, you should start like Matsudai dog food company yeah. and just sell it. <laughs> sell like your leftover. You know what? I wish, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Actually. <laughs> Premium craft dog food, you know, and then you can have the whole story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mm. Like fresh only has to be eaten with it. You can put expiration <laughs> dates on it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Organic free range hand meat. Yeah, food. organic free range uh, hand dog food, premium dog food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure your dog loves it. Probably tastes really yeah, good. Yeah, so. it does. Yeah. yeah, he's really into it. There's nothing he loves more than chicken. <laughs> uh, um, do you do any like vegetable stocks? I have a question from Chil Gong Fu. What are the best vegetable combos for different flavors? Or do you add veg- certain vegetables into like a chintan or things like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, in a chintan, I think the aim with vegetables really is to, um, or a meat broth generally, is just to balance, um, yeah, the the extreme meatiness of a broth and add you know a bit of aroma to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in in vegetarian broths. Veggie broths are just really hard, I think, mm-hmm. to get to get right. It's easy. I think it's easy to get some flavour, um, mushrooms, um, and aromatics are the, are the key ones, and then some body from like um, I like using corn on the cob. To, you can't overuse that because it really gets front and centre mm-hmm. quite quickly, um, and you know, again, it's just. I tend to use mostly aromatics, um, just carrots and onions. Uh, so yeah, mushrooms are the big one. I think one thing that's really, really good um, in a veggie broth, and there's like a technique that I learned from, um, I can't remember who I learned it from, but it's to, it's to um, brown mushrooms. So the first thing you do is, um, yeah, portobello mushrooms are really good for it. Um, I can't remember what they called portobello mushrooms in the US. Uh, but portobello portobello mushrooms. mushrooms, you, you brown, you, yeah, just like brown them, Maillard reaction. Um, and then when, when they're sticking to the bottom of the pot and they're a bit gnarly, um, you know, use some water uh, to deglaze the pan and then use that as the base for your broth. Um, and also use, um, it's another good way of using uh, dried mushrooms. So yeah, I, I would say pretty much all of my vegetarian broths are um, based around mushrooms. And then the other thing is just to have a, the thing that's difficult about um, vegetarian, that's difficult to get right about vegetarian broths is um, body. Um, obviously you're missing all the gelatin. Um, so there are things you can, there's, someone was telling me earlier about a product. Um, find it what's it called i know a hard thing about um just from the research i've been doing recently about umami and things one of the key components to get umami 
can only be found in animal products like pork, yeah. chicken, or fish that you know, you know cyanate. Yeah. So if you're doing a vegetarian broth, you can get the glutamates from kombu and vegetables, but yeah. you can't get that that enhancer, that flavor enhancer from you know the meats or things like that. And the best you get is yeah. guanolate from mushrooms. But the yeah. hard part about that is that there's so much glutamate also in mushrooms that it cancels out any kind of enhancing effect that you yeah, could yeah. potentially get from it. So yeah. it's a challenge to do a really good vegetable it's, it's, run. Yeah, it's run. a real challenge. So someone was telling me earlier about a thing called Ultratax, mm -hmm. which is like a, a thickening agent, um, but a really natural feeling one. I've, oh. used, I've used potatoes sometimes yeah, yeah. and then blended the potatoes, but it doesn't feel quite right. And then at the end, kombu, steeping kombu just to mm -hmm. try bring out... Uh, the glutamate but i think the other thing is just pick is just choosing your tarries well yeah and, and i think if you like a miso a miso vegan ramen is just just works you just want something that's gonna you don't like a it's really hard to, to make a great vegetarian shio ramen it's really hard mm -hmm. to make a it's slightly easier to make a good vegan shoyu ramen uh -huh. and yeah another way of adding body of course is to use either a soy milk or a I, I made um I did a I did a mushroom paitan with um uh cashew milk at Christmas. Oh, right. when I did the tonkotsu. So yeah, it's just about balancing um trying to find trying to get some body into it and trying to get you can get flavour in, but it's getting that umami mm -hmm. into the broth, which is the difficult bit. And you know, honestly, like there's a massive demand for vegetarian and vegan food in, in Cardiff. Yeah. So it's a really big part of what we, it's had to be a, a part of what we do, yeah. especially because where we, the place we're in is a, is a vegetarian restaurant the rest of the time oh. when we go in and pop up, like we have to have that, that offer in there. Um, but it's definitely something that it, I'm always trying to get better at and, and trying to improve. Yeah, that's a, uh, I've been trying to figure that out too, because I get a lot of requests for vegan vegetarian ramen. And it's like, man, it's, I'm going to do a video on like the science of umami and why it's really, really challenging to get that right. But yeah, maybe, miso, maybe like I, I saw Kazel's working on like a miso ramen, vegetarian yeah, yeah, miso ramen. Mino. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Engineered Mino or Meno or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to try that. Do you, do you use um, aroma oils in your tonkotsu? Sorry, going back to your tonkotsu. Um, yeah, so it depends on how um, heavy the tonkotsu is. Sometimes I don't. Oh, really, okay. I don't. Um, I keep. I, I make sure that whenever I'm serving it, I've got um, some uh, just yeah, gi you know, ginger, shallot, lard, basically, um, in case um, it needs a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. But then, quite uh, for the first few that we were also serving mayo with it. Mayu, Mayu. How, how do you mm. say that? I've always wondered. Oh, Mayu. Mayu, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've been using that as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good uh, match for tonkotsu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's tough. You don't want to, you don't want to overdo it because it's, yeah. it's kind of like, it's quite, it's a really heavy thing to eat already. <laughs> yeah. God, you still got a lot of questions. I'm sorry. It's going to take a while uh -huh. to get through these. Cool. I've, got, so. I've, I've got nowhere to go. So. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, Der uh, Bastiman, I think that's how you say his name. When a bowl is unbalanced, how do you find out what needs to be fixed? For example, like aroma oils, tare soup, et cetera. Like, how do you diagnose the problem when you 
make something and you taste it and it's like, oh, this is not balanced at all. That's an interesting question. Um, I think it really depends. Um, and I think maybe it's something where as you get better and you start to understand how the bowls better. Like the, it's a, the funny thing is before, when I started making, making ramen, I'd never really eaten a bowl of ramen. Hmm. Like it was only last year that I, I went to New York and I got to ramen shack and I got to Ivan ramen and I got, and then I started, started I went to Canada. So I didn't really have any frames of reference. So it's really been a case of piecing everything together myself. Um, so I guess I, I think it, yeah, I don't, I don't really know, man. Like, I think if you, if you know you're missing Emma, I think it's a case of like recognizing what you're missing. So if you feel like you're missing umami, then it's just a case of having an understanding of how you fix that. Like in a tonkotsu, you might literally just want to put MSG in. Whereas if you've got a Pitana, you know, you can look at adding a, a dashi element or a geofun or you could just, you know. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a case of, for me, it's not, this isn't a very good answer, but sort of feeling your way through it and just learning intrinsically like what those elements are and how they combine to balance. Yeah. Cool. Cool. If you could, uh, this is kind of an interesting question. Ryan wants ramen asks, if you could use one off the wall ingredient to base a bowl on, what would it be? Um, there's a thing called lava bread. Have you heard of lava bread? No, no. What is that? It's like a Welsh um, mushed up. It's kind of like a mushed up kelp. Let me find the um, definition for you now. So lava bread is a traditional Welsh delicacy made from lava seaweed. To make lava bread, the seaweed is boiled for several hours, then minced or pureed. The gelatinous paste that results can then be sold as it is or rolled in oatmeal. So it's like this really strange... Like, oh, that's cool. Because you know, like, isn't that kind of like the same thing that nori is made out of? That that yeah. same type of seaweed? Ah, oh. exactly. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a Welsh delicacy, and there's like there's great lava bread in, in Wales. So I've been thinking about how that could work. You know, you could make a, a really great mazaman. Um, like a yeah. Mazaman. Um, so I think, yeah, that that would be my that would probably be my off the wall choice at the moment, just because it's been on my mind. There's like there's a place in in Wales that does um a lava bread pizza. Uh-huh. Bacon, bacon and cockles so um yeah someone along those lines how has the reception been for ramen in wales is it kind of like a well-known thing or is it kind of like you well, came out of the blue and like what is this new food you know like well, never well, had this seems, before it seems like people knew what it was but everyone uh-huh. was like unable to access it it's really strange because there was no it's not like it was on the public consciousness or something. It wasn't the pe- some of the people were talking about. Yeah, yeah. But the reception has been absolutely nuts. Like people are so in- into it and just like really want to eat it. Yeah, that's uh, awesome, man. And it's I think it, it's it's almost got like a um, a mystical status over here because it's really misunderstood. Like people just don't know what it is. People don't, you know, we don't have those ingredients. Like it's mm-hmm. it's so hard. There's one Japanese store in um in Cardiff and I think that could well be the only one in Wales um, and it's not far from me which is lucky um, but yeah this people just don't know about this food so it's been really like that's that's been an advantage for me like just because um, 
because there's no there's nothing else to gauge what I do against people are just really um, I think they're I think intrinsically people are able to tell that I don't cut corners like I didn't expect that to come across in the food yeah um, just like the level of like obsession it takes to get uh -huh. good at this like it takes it's taken so much time and so much work and that's really come across to people and that's a really lovely thing because you don't re I didn't really expect it to you know uh -huh. I didn't expect people to be able to like get it yeah so much but people have really got it and people really sort of intrinsically that, understand that's awesome man is there like um I know Andre in Australia talked about it. People don't really eat instant ramen in Australia. Is that the same thing in the UK or in Wales where people don't eat instant ramen or? No, uh, I, like you could get it, but yeah, not yeah. really. Like I, yeah. I had eaten, I had been making ramen for like two years by the time I tried my first instant ramen. <laughs> <laughs> Which was oh, a shin uh, <laughs> yeah. ramen. Yeah, yeah. And it was pretty great, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's like kind of mind-blowing because everybody in america when they hear the word ramen they think instantly think of that that block that dried yeah. the block of ramen and so yeah. a lot of people when they uh just see like real ramen for the first time it's like what is this and then they're kind of like blown away by it so it's kind of yeah. interesting to hear in other countries the response to ramen because they don't have that attachment to the block of instant ramen so yeah no i mean it is a thing we have a huh. thing called pot noodle over here okay which is like yeah you know like a uh it, you know it is what it sounds like yeah. <laughs> the pot noodles <laughs> um but there's you know more british kind of flavors um, oh, i see i see so it is kind of you know people know what ramen is people know what instant ramen is but it's just not something that um is quite so widespread and it's not, mm. I think it's like, that comes from uh, college, university. Yeah. It? Where like yeah. people go to college and they've got no money. So all mm. they eat is, is like, it's just basically salt and carbs for yep, yep. three years or whatever it is. Whereas people don't tend to do that so much here. People. <laughs> what, do, what do college kids eat in Wales and in the UK? I think, I think it's more like just crap sort of uh potato based things uh, <laughs> and like really bad pizza you know <laughs> uh, is that like, like super cheap too in, over there yeah, 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 uh, yeah okay yeah that makes sense yeah it'll be like waff like potato waffles and uh -huh. beans and fish fish fingers and like you know cheap sausages and things like that <laughs> yeah it's kind of like a cultural thing in america where you think of like college kids cooking and eating and you think about instant ramen or cup ramen or yeah. It's kind of, I don't know where that's come from, where that's come from, but that really is a thing here. Yeah. 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 It, it seems like it from the outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's, what's been the biggest challenge of doing ramen pop-ups in Wales? This is from Cody, Cody 88, Cody 88. I'm sorry. I don't really know how to oh, say it. Oh yeah. K-O-T-E. Yeah. 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 I know. Um, the biggest challenge. Um, I think just that I probably, We've had, I've had like a remarkably smooth transition into it. It's been a total accident um, and people have just taken to it. People have bought the tickets um, and I've worked with really lovely people. Like the venues that have hosted us have been really lovely mostly. Um, so none of that has been a problem. I think just there's been, um, I've also got a guy working with me called Dan McGee who runs, who like, is not op operations manager for like a chain of burger places so he's 
like being in the kitchen with me and he's probably helped me avoid a lot of mistakes like don't get me wrong we've made mistakes but he's helped me scale up and and all of that stuff so i i think probably the most difficult things about running a pop-up have been just i really underestimated despite the fact that i knew exactly how long it would take i really i really underestimated how difficult it would be and how long it would take like it takes so long and it's really grueling like you're in it's no glamour it's like you're in a sweaty kitchen for really long days for a lot of days um so that is quite tough because i love being in the kitchen but when it's like that it's it's hard and then the other thing that's been a problem is just been moving stuff around so like it's not like we're going into kitchens of ramen shops and taking over like we're going into you know just bistro they're not set up for ramen at all so you're basically moving into a kitchen um and bringing all your own crockery every time all of your own ladles and blow torches and whatever it is a whole you know there's boxes full of stuff you've got to take in your oh. own cutlery cutlery being chopsticks and spoons yeah um, so it's just like the physicality of just moving all that stuff around all the time that's um, true like how would you even like boil the noodles in a bistro you'd have to bring like a giant pot your yeah. own baskets and things yeah yeah oh. so I've, I've got a load of baskets now and <laughs> I, bought, I bought a couple of pasta boilers as well um, okay. which, weren't, which weren't cheap but they just don't they don't do the job really so they've been retired <laughs> <laughs> and now we're back to good old pots and pans pots and pans um, so yeah I think they're they're the two main challenges really just the pure amount of work they both come down to it just being loads of work mm-hmm. um, and I think that I had a question as well from someone called uh, let me find it someone called Just Many um and she asked why do you have london prices for your ramen Um, what does that mean (laughs) well i think it's like maybe in the states you'd have new york prices would you so everything's just slightly more expensive oh okay okay the epicenter maybe i don't Mm -hmm. know but that's what it's like here you know like london prices london the living costs living in london are so much higher than the rest Uh Um, and i think like it's a really reasonable question um but it's, it's purely like the economy of scale like if, if i was in a if i had a, a shop and it was open all the time then it would be no problem having someone there doing tonkatsu from mm-hmm. you know five o'clock in the morning until midnight whatever it is um but when you're one guy doing this like you think about it say i do 80 covers say i sell 80 tickets for my pop-up and everybody spends 15 quid that's like 1200 quid yeah um so by the time you've paid so i'll, I'll pay the venue with 10 percent. i've got the cost of goods um i've got to move everything around i've got to hire a prep kitchen i've mm-hmm. got to um i've got to pay a sous chef um, i've got to pay a kitchen hand like there's just no money in it <laughs> and, and so when you break all that down say you know there's like um there's all these subscriptions I've got to pay NCAS, I've got to, you know, all these things. Uh-huh. I've got to pay the ticketing subscription. Um, and there's a few hundred quid left. Like if you divided my time 
Yeah. I, I'm getting paid like nothing. I'm getting paid like a pound an hour or something. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. when, you, when you start scaling those things up, um, it just becomes a lot easier to make sense. Yeah, that's true. Of, of the I think... There's also the fact that like the Tonkatsu that I've sold so far, it hasn't, like if you go to, if you go to a Pudo in London and you buy it and you get like their house Tonkatsu, which is 12 quid, um, mm. that, you know, you don't, you know, it's just, it's just Tonkatsu, some woody and mushrooms, some spring onion, um, and a really, really thin slice, one really, really thin slice of chashu. Uh-huh. And to us, you get like our Tonkatsu is 14 quid. Mm-hmm. It's been, um, it's, it's come with woody ears, comes with ajitama, it comes with spring onions, then it comes with two slices of char shoe, it comes with mayu, it comes with also a slice of like rare pork shoulder sous vide char shoe. So, you know, the product is... is yeah, there's more things in it. Yeah, there's just, there's just more toppings. Yeah, basically it's simple. Um, and, so more things, and the more things requires more time to make more things, so... Yeah. You know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely love to, love to um, bring the prices down. And I've been chatting to... Um, someone about taking over a kitchen for a couple of months. So it might be that we open somewhere, uh, another pop-up, but on a more um, full-time kind of basis. Uh, oh, so if, if we do, I'll definitely look at all that stuff and be trying to bring prices down. We're not trying to rip anyone off or make loads of money. We're not making loads of money. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you got you, you to gotta eat too. You got to just, yeah. yeah. I think Mike was talking about it where he's charging, I think in America with his pop-ups, I think he has doing like 20 bucks a bowl or something. Yeah. And it's kind of, and he says, that's what, if you're a pop-up, you kind of need to charge a little bit more just because you have that's, to, yeah. the, I mean, the margins are much smaller because you don't have the scale and you don't have a bunch of things. So yeah, exactly. And there's like, there's, yeah, there's all these people involved and there's all these, like there's all these people to pay. And also there's another thing, which is if you're popping up and you're doing a hundred bowls and you're doing that twice a month, like we have, like you're not getting good prices on your on your um uh ingredients yeah yeah you know like if you're if you're a restaurant and you're doing like i was speaking to the guy at canada and he was like we do we'll do like across the world they'll do like 10 12 000 covers a week mm-hmm, and like yeah. at that stage your ingredients costs are going to come down to nothing yeah you know, if you're the guy who owns a pudo how much are you paying for pork bones yeah you know, yeah it's going to be next to nothing so whereas for me i'm paying i think i can't remember but it's it's not cheap. It's like three quid a kilo or something yeah. like that. Like you know, um, so yeah, it's just it's just hard and money wise doesn't make a lot of money. It's a really <laughs> it's stupid thing to do as a business <laughs> idea. Actually, <laughs> I would advise everyone against it. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. I think well, we see it like everywhere. It's kind of that's one of the biggest challenges I see. Where for people that love making ramen, like obviously you love making ramen, but the more profitable shops are the ones that are run by people that really don't care. They'll just rip up in a bag of stock yeah. and dump it into a pod. And yeah, hey, yeah. I also serve sushi here. If you want yeah. sushi, what's your ramen? That's fine too. You know? And, and that's something I'm exploring. It's like what Mike was saying on, on the podcast um, when he was on, which is just by definition, as you scale up, your quality comes down mm-hmm. um, af- after a certain point. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, how comfortable you are with that and yeah. at which, and at what point what's your cutoff point for that um which i'm yet to discover mm-hmm. maybe but maybe yeah. the uh, yeah what what Definitely would be like the that. balance of that maybe like you do like the 
the normal pop-ups, but you'd reduce the quality, but then you do the black, the exclusive black club pop-up where it's yeah. like, you know, $50 yeah. a head and you're doing yeah, like yeah. The, everything, the craft ramen kind of thing. Yeah. So you can still do that. And so people realize like, oh, you can go to the regular pop-up, but the one that I want to go to is the one that's like. <laughs> it's the expensive one. Yeah, the expensive one, you know, and then they get to take the Instagram photo and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. do all those things. <laughs> All right, just a couple more questions here. So speaking of Mike, he, he asks the question, Ramen Over asks, what is your style of ramen and how does that compare to the ramen around you? That's a really interesting question, actually. So, yeah, when I was listening to your podcast with him, the subject of like Kodawari came up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Kodawari for you and for him where ramen is concerned is very different from Kodawari for me. So to me, Kodawari has just been getting this off the ground. Mm-hmm. Like just being able to make any ramen at all has been a product of, of just like two to three years of just total obsession and just con- like concentrating on that and just mm-hmm. all my spare time spent, spent doing it. And I think that, um, that translates translates to this question. It's really hard to. Um, it's been really. It's, it's a lot. Sorry, I'm trying to get this out. It's been a lot slower process um, working through these recipes and improving everything than it would be. I think if I was in Japan or the states. So my specialism, I don't really know yet. To be honest, I think I think that'll come down the line. Um, I think the one, the the kind of ramen that is that that I'm most hooked on. Um, I know I was saying a paitan earlier, and a paitan broth is is definitely a chicken paitan is where I gravitate broth wise. But it, the ramen discipline I like the most is probably miso, just because I feel like there's so much room within that to to navigate and be creative and um, yeah. Uh, and it can be a really rich thing or it can be a little bit lighter. And yeah, I think that's, there's so much variation within it. So I think that's probably where I'm heading, but I don't, I don't, I don't really know at the moment, to be honest. I'm going to figure that out as I go. Yeah. yeah. And keep making broths and yeah. How does that compare to the ramen around you? I mean, I mean if you don't, I mean, you don't really have a style, but what it, what's being served around you and I'm sure it's like, if the demand is there for what you're doing, then I'm sure it's much different than what's currently available in Wales. Yeah, well, there, there is nothing available. There's some, oh, okay. we're the only ramen place in Wales. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's, there, there are Japanese restaurants that will serve mm-hmm. some ramen, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, like a one, I show you generally that will be from, as you've discussed many times, <laughs> it's just packet of yeah. uh, diluted soup base. Um, so yeah, we're the, I'm the only person I think in Wales doing a wow. doing a, a run from scratch. This in Bristol, which is like an hour or so away, um, just across the border, there are a couple of shops. But again, like nothing, nothing scary. Very cool. I mean, I didn't know that you're the only guy there. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool for me for the podcast. I can say I have the only <laughs> shop in Wales on the podcast. <laughs> He's like the best guy in Wales making ramen. <laughs> <laughs> He's the best ramen shop in Wales. I could say that. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So I got one last question here. I'm sorry if I missed anybody else's questions. I got kind of a lot and I tried to get them all, but um, Poco Poco Ramen asks, given the difference in the amount of Japanese people in the UK compared to the US, where do you think ramen in the UK is headed? And you already kind of answered the other question. So let's just do that one. Yeah. Um, I think, I think ramen in the UK is probably really similar to ramen in the US, mm-hmm. but we're probably like 10 years behind. So I think, okay. I think um, when you were talking to Brian, Ramen Adventures, he was saying about, uh, you were talking about tonkotsu ramen and how it was because Americans had, uh, you know, almost like, he was saying almost like, an, he was joking around, but almost like an undeveloped palate and, <laughs> you know, you know, like the kids or whatever. But I think, Realistically, I mean, ramen is such a young food. It's, it I mean, it's a young food in Japan, but like for, mm-hmm. for us, people just don't understand it. So, um, yeah, when people are first trying a bowl of ramen, like tonkotsu, tonkotsu was the gateway drug for for like so many people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think people are just still in that phase, you know. Like, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't begrudge people that. Um, and I think there's probably a, a long, long, it's going to be a long, long time before people that like veer away from overwhelmingly voting for um, Paitan broths, so mm-hmm. Paitan or Tonkotsu or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know where it'll go, but I, there's definitely, there's definitely um, an appetite, a new appetite for it in the UK. And there's definitely a, uh, an upsurge in the amount of people who are starting to do it and talking about it. There's some really interesting ramen in the UK, you know, like um, Supiya Ramen in London's mm-hmm. kicking out amazing bowls. Um, it's, it's, it's very, it's very early, but there's definitely um, a, a, like a little subculture um, appearing around it. So I'm not sure. Yeah. It just, it feels a lot like the U S scene, but a long time ago to me, basically. That's very cool. Yeah, I know that um Kazel's trying to push um he's not doing a tonkotsu at his new pop-up now. His new right, ramen yeah. shack. He's only doing a shoyu ramen and I think he's working on a miso, but I think the American palette is well, I can't speak just speaking generally. It seems like a lot of people in America have eaten tonkotsu now and are kind of tired of it. And so yeah. maybe there is a, maybe this now is the next this decade is the decade where the shoyus and the miso ramens and the shio ramens start to come out in America. Yeah, too, I so. think so. And I, people, yeah. just, you know, it's it's just the way in for people, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you you look at a picture of a bottle of tonkatsu on Instagram or whatever it is, and it's there all glistening white. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a really nice. It's aesthetically, it's re, it's a really nice thing. And then people yeah. want to eat it and they want to show off. It's one of those foods where people mm-hmm. are almost like want to show off by the fact they're eating it and. Yeah, but there's going to come a point where that saturates and people are sick of tonkotsu, but mm-hmm. they won't get sick of ramen because it's a food for every every day. Like, you know, it's not a... I think people are going to come into it thinking it's this glamorous thing and then, you know, just by hook or by crook, it'll become apparent that there's a bowl for, there's a bowl for every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just curious, what is the... Has, has sushi changed in, in the UK too? Or is it still dragon rolls and uh, California still, rolls? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly okay. that. Yeah, it's exactly that. 
Okay. It's kind of just, I always kind of think about that comparison because in America, they kind of did shift for a little while to people now, a lot, a lot more people know that sushi can be more than dragon rolls and, and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And I kind of always liken ramen to that, but ramen has always been more food for the people. So it's interesting. I guess. I yeah. I, re- I remember when uh, the first sushi place opened in Cardiff uh-huh. um, and I was in a taxi. We, I was, we were going, me and a friend were going over there um, and we got in a taxi and we told the taxi driver where we were going and he just incredulous. He couldn't believe that we'd be going to eat raw fish. Like, <laughs> like what, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> I just thought it was disgusting, you know. Uh, so yeah, we. I think I think the British and American trajectory, where Japanese food is concerned, are pretty similar. But we're just like way behind on that learning curve. It's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good point. That um, yeah, raw fish. Is, like I grew up in Hawaii, so Hawaii is we eat raw fish all the time. Hawaiians ate raw fish and everybody who lives here always eats raw fish from when we're kids. So like, it never was yeah, a thing, yeah. but raw fish as a, is if you're not from Hawaii, it probably is a very weird thing. Yeah. To put it's, into your it's mouth. definitely taken, yeah. like it's really popular here now, like, yeah. but um, yeah, it's definitely taken people are getting, definitely taken the public quite a lot of getting <laughs> used to, you know, like it's just didn't understand at first at all. Very cool. Well, I think we can wrap it up there. That was, I should have ended it on Poco Poco Ramen. question. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Can I just check? Sorry, because a couple of people sent them to me. Oh, yeah, let's go through those. Someone's asked, someone's asked, what's your best advice for making flavorful vegan and vegetarian? (laughs) I could Um, use some of that advice. I I think we kind of went through that, didn't Uh we? Um, And what makes a good broth from Peckish Cardiff, which we also kind of Mm -hmm. have gone through. Um, and then someone else, Jackie Chu, was asked me industry secrets and industry pitfalls. Um, but I'm not really sure I, I can answer that because industry secrets could be if you go to the Rajuku video on ramen yeah, adventures exactly. and <laughs> you pause it as an industry secret tari recipe that you can see. Yeah, industry secrets basically. Yeah, uh, that and just like go and find Mike on on Reddit. Yeah, that would be. Um, and then industry pitfalls would be, yeah, the whole thing. Just, just don't do it. It's really bad. <laughs> the, the whole whole thing is a pitfall. Yeah, yeah it's one giant like, pit. Yeah, stay away. You'll end up spending. You know, it'll take all of your time. You'll be really tired. You'll make no money. Like, do something else. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Is that you had any other questions? No, there was I from from a guy called. Ortega got game. He said, "Wishing you the best in 2020, fam." Oh, yeah, that's a good. One. Yeah, thanks, Ortega. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. It. So, can you tell everybody where they can find you online and where your shop is and where you're popping up right now? Yeah, uh, the website is www.matsudai.co.uk, um, or we're at Matsudai Ramen um, on Instagram and Facebook and all of that stuff. Um, we've got a pop up next Thursday. And then I'm not sure what we're going to do next, actually. It depends what happens with this longer term thing. Um, but yeah, there'll be more news soon. We've got, we have um, a mailing list. Um, and whenever I put a, an event on sale, I, I always put, t- I always give t- first refusal on tickets to people on the mailing list. So go and join the mailing list. 
Um, Very cool. Not that I've probably got a huge amount of listeners in this will have a huge <laughs> <laughs> But you know, if there's anyone out there. <laughs> I, I I really hope that the MSG talk doesn't cost you like customers are like, I oh, didn't uh, know that he was putting. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't care if it does. <laughs> Go and try and find a, a good bowl of tonkatsu that hasn't got MSG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might not be telling you, you might not realize it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's on you. If you think that's really bad, it's not, it's kind of on you. And I, you know, don't come. <laughs> yeah, it's else. basically like uh, <laughs> you can get a good bowl of tonkotsu with MSG, or you can have someone lie to your face that there's yeah, no MSG. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, man. <laughs> all right, James. Well, this has been fun. It's been yeah, really. I think this is a really good episode. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll see you guys all in the next one. Thanks again so much to James for coming on the show. I had a blast talking to him. And the pop-up that he was talking about at the end of the episode is actually this week. But it looks like it's already sold out already. So sorry if you guys um, are in Wales and you couldn't get tickets for it. Give him a follow on Instagram, at Matsudai Ramen. He's putting out some great bowls there. And if you're interested in watching someone try to learn how to make ramen, someone fumble their way through the process of learning, you can follow me, at Way of Ramen, or check out my YouTube channel, you can just search for Way of Ramen on YouTube and you can see me embarrass myself pretty much every week. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you all in the next episode. Peace.